Welcome to episode 321 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Tara and Anne. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Tara and Anne, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'll be your host today. Joining me today is Diana. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Diana. Thank you for having me, Spencer. You have a reading here from what the Codependence Guide to the 12 Steps? Yes. So, Codependence Guide to 12 Steps, this particular quote focuses on step six, ready to have God remove our defects of character. We become ready to let go of our inability to own our own power, to think, feel, be who we are, take care of ourselves, and enjoy life. We become ready to let go of our difficulty with setting boundaries and limits with people. We become ready to let go of our reluctance to fill and deal with our feelings, our inability to experience joy and love, or negativity, hopelessness, and despair. We let go of our fear, joy, and love. We ask God to take away everything that stands in the way of us having all we deserve in our lives. I like that. I like the different ways that that in step six, we're becoming ready to let go. I felt like it was really appropriate, you know, after writing my book to focus on the sixth step because um, I had essentially done an inventory of my life. And, you know, this was a perfect opportunity to kind of let go of some some hurts from my past. And and it is scary, you know, when you begin to remove those defects of character and opening yourself up to vulnerabilities. Right. You've been listening to the show for, I guess, quite a while. I know you've been contributing sharings now and then for several years. Yeah. So I really love the show. I kind of found it, stumbled upon it and uh, been pretty much hooked ever since. As I mentioned in my story, I went to meetings as a child for Al-Anon as a result of my stepdad's parole. But it wasn't until my 30s that I actually started to get um, benefits from the program and really involve myself. But um, yeah, it's a part of my life and my, my healing journey for sure. Yeah. So why don't I go ahead and and play the longer share that you sent where you talk about your story, and then we'll come back and, uh, and talk a little bit more. All right. Thank you. Hello. I was asked to speak with you about my experience of growing up in a home with addiction, how that impacted me as a child, and how Al-Anon has helped me. I wrote a book about my experience called Born Into Crazy, which Spencer will leave the link, and I will also give you an excerpt from the book at the end. I did want to leave a warning that This is going to be a little trigger heavy with sharing some information. So if you are sensitive to that kind of a thing, you might want to go ahead and hit the stop button now. Otherwise, we'll get into my story. So my first experience with addiction was with my mom's boyfriend, who is an alcoholic. It started when I was age eight. He physically abused my mom and he would do things like, block me in a dark basement, 
He would force me to strip naked as a form of punishment. Many other things that we would be here all day if I sat and listed, but I began at that time to deal with panic attacks. I'd lose large, large patches of hair as a result from the stress. And I felt very much alone in the world. So a lot of loneliness at that age. Parenting was non-existent, you know, highly unpredictable. And I realized that I had myself to lean on. I never knew what I was coming home to. An angry drunk, a night of torture, a decent night. There was no real consistency. So it was a very fear-driven, you know, fear environment. What did that do to me and how did that make me feel? Well, I would say it impacted my emotional and intellectual development as a child. When you're living in terror and you're focused on survival, you know, I personally felt like my life was in danger. Home wasn't safe. You know, you're not going to be thinking about learning in school. You're going to be thinking about your life. And so it just was, it was an atmosphere of fear. Home wasn't safe. I never knew what to expect. And so I had to act like everything was normal. Try not to make waves. As a child, I felt like they played into my pain. So if I showed that weakness, they, it would just make my suffering worse. So I wasn't really allowed the luxury of breaking, even though I was definitely broken as a child. I felt because of all this, you know, a lot of shame, guilt, loneliness, profound sadness. As a young girl, my understanding of their actions were that it was rejection and somehow my fault not understanding the disease and the sickness that was penetrating my family. You know, I thought if only I were more perfect, they would love me. And so I began to be very hyper vigilant, just trustful, panicked, afraid, sad. As I said, I would work myself up into panic attacks at the thought of going down in the basement. I formed into a perfectionist, self-reliant, the caretaker. And my sister ended up becoming kind of the rebel. She actually did drugs with her dad thinking it would be a way to bond with him. Whereas I believe perfectionism would somehow cure the situation. In addition to, to the addiction, my mother dealt with bipolar with schizophrenic tendencies. So that brought another layer of struggles into the home. When I was about the age of nine, that boyfriend had been arrested and went to prison. And then my mom and eventually met my stepdad and he definitely was an alcoholic, but he was heavily involved in other substances, you know, drugs. And so primarily his, he did drugs. He was a dealer and there was a lot of traffic inside the home, loud music, partying all night. I struggled very much in school because of the constant, you know, noise. Fights would break out over petty things such as st stolen cigarettes, flirting with someone's man, you know, Settling things with fists was quite common. I did find people having sex in my bedroom. I did come across needles and crack pipes and saw people getting high. And so, you know, another layer was that my family did criminal activity together. So things like stealing was really common. My stepdad was known to rob gas stations we had stolen cars. There was stolen food. Um, at one point, we robbed our neighbors. And so some of that was was normalized. Basically, you know, the house was dirty. Lots of roaches. Cat urine soiled laundry. And so 
I often went to school staying clothing. The food factor was another kind of dynamic. The The house didn't always have a lot of food. You know, when people do the drug that my stepdad did, it, actually people don't usually eat when they do that drug. And so when I would get food, I would binge eat and I would eat compulsively and excessively in fear of not knowing when I would get to eat again. And so that created a lot of issues for me around fear-based eating. Growing up, DHS got involved several times. My grandparents were kind of a huge role in my life. However, they dealt with denial and they enabled quite a bit. So they would kind of prep me on what to say. So lying became very normal and lying was all about who I was protecting. I would say as a child, that whole lying thing created a lot of confusion because I would see the truth, but then, you know, they would convince me that truth was wrong. So I began questioning my deductive reasoning. So there were blurred lines of where the truth was. And something that I found was talking about it openly was seen as worse than doing it. You know, the secrets make us sick. So as a kid, I was expected to hide the drug use, hide the abuse, and hide mom's mental illness. I retreated inside myself and became extremely secretive, and I hid this horrible secret, which was quite a heavy burden to hide. I could get into a lot of stuff, and like I said, there was a lot more detail in my book. Basically, my stepdad, I found him to be a pain in the ass when he was sober. When he was on drugs, he was a bearable human being. It was... um just a toxic, difficult situation of never knowing what was going to happen one day to the next. You know, we had homeless people living with us at several points. I, like I said, would come across needles in our basement. I did have a little secret of taking my stepdad's crack pipes and hiding them in our yard and then watching him frantically search for his pipe. <laughs> my stepdad ended up later going to prison around this time with our first experience with going to meetings. So meetings were part of his parole. So the family thought of the meetings as if they were for weak people. You know, we all hated going. It was forced. I ended up not getting out anything out of it at that age, but it wasn't until later in my 30s that Alanon was a huge piece in my life. I would say how all of this impacted me is I never felt safe sexually, emotionally, mentally, or physically. You know, I pr- protected myself in hiding, secrecy, lies, It was years before I was able to tell the truth about my life. And as I said, those lies created a confusion in me and I questioned my deductive reasoning. Growing up, I found ways to not be home. I often hid out. In those earlier years, when I was like eight or nine, I remember that aching feeling, empty pit in the stomach, feeling of loneliness, like very alone as a child, just grabbing onto any form of love I could find. You know, I struggled in school. I had an inability to concentrate. I struggled socially. I was super withdrawn. They thought I had a learning disability at one point, put me in special classes. And of course we know that now a lot of studies have been done that trauma in childhood can harm a child's brain development and it can have residual effects, you know, on development and, and um, higher rates of, of depression, promiscuity, alcoholism and all that stuff. So it definitely impacts a child in my teen years kind of living like this, I was able to harden and had a big wall and barrier between me and my parents. And I convinced myself that 
they couldn't hurt me and they wouldn't hurt me. I'm strong. I'm not a victim. Screw them. You know, that was my mentality. I just counted down the days to where I could leave and tried to save any amount of money I could because I just wanted to get the hell away from this house and as far away as I could possibly get. So I ended up running away at the age of 17 to escape. Um, I left the state. I didn't see many options for myself. It wasn't like I felt like I could go to college, that, even that I felt that I was scholarly because I was so distracted in school by my home life that I actually questioned my own intelligence until later in my life when I was able to to see, no, there was actually nothing wrong with, with my brain. It was just, I was in the middle of chaos, you know? And so kind of spent my twenties just running and, you know, I, I hated talking about it, tried to pretend like it never happened. No one knew about my past. I did not want to acknowledge that back there. I thought I could change the narrative and that everything was fine. And so I never dealt with my feelings about it. So it finally caught up with me in my thirties. At that point in my thirties, I was having panic attacks. I was on depression meds. I was struggling with flashbacks. I didn't understand why the pain of my past felt so close. Like it just happened yesterday. You know, it had been years. And so those feelings literally started bursting out of me like a volcano erupting and they were demanding to be felt and I couldn't push them down anymore. I think I cried for two weeks straight and I began to finally feel the injustice, the immorality, the neglect, the deep pain, the hurt, the anger, the anguish. I decided to go to therapy as, you know, to get help navigating the terrain of trauma. These are complicated things within us as individuals. And it's my experience and opinion that when you're dealing with trauma, it's better to work with someone who is licensed, you know, skilled professional. So that, that was the road I chose to do. It's very common for children who grew up in trauma to deal with depression and PSD or aggression. And I ended up getting diagnosed with PTSD. That was really shocking because I had tried so hard and proved so hard that it didn't hurt me. It didn't impact me, but the truth was that it did you know, painful flashbacks, certain songs, smells, or places would cause me to crumble. I did have, and still do have black spots in my memory in my childhood that I don't know what happened. I can just feel the feeling of that black spot, but I don't know what happened. That hypervigilance was a skill that protected me in my childhood. But as an adult, I was now out of danger and yet I couldn't stop feeling the world was scary. And so I had to really confront that belief inside of me that the world was bad. The therapist thankfully was very intuitive and in listening to my talking about the addiction and growing up with it and referred me to the Melody Beattie books, which have helped me tremendously you know, basically said the work is going to be lifelong. This is going to require awareness for the rest of your life. And doing Al Anon, there have been so many tools along the way that have helped me. I think a lot of it has just been knowledge of myself, which has made me more aware and alert to my own flaws and how, you know, how I can deal with my own character defects. So an example would be I learned that I like control, something I learned in my childhood. 
And of course, when Al-Anon let go and let God. And then I learned that I was a reactor. And then at Al-Anon, they say, think, you know, stop and think before you say anything. I definitely feared being like my parents. I was a perfectionist trying so hard to prove, I think, to myself that it wasn't going to break me. The truth was I needed to become whole. I acknowledged that there were big holes in me and that I had to learn self-love, kindness, grace, and compassion for myself. But, you know, compassion is a big thing. Learning to have compassion for the addicts in my life took me time to get there. I have to tell you, because it's a process of working through your own feelings. And for me, I felt anger It felt like for a very long time. And then under the anger was a lot of hurt. I eventually got to compassion, but you know, when you haven't felt your feelings for decades, it's, there's just a lot to work through learning to not take on the other person's problem. You know, they can get well with, with no help from me, not focusing on the sick person. And initially that felt like selfish, like they need me, you know, what are they going to do? But really the dynamic between both of us, it was so dysfunctional that I just remember in therapy, you know, her asking me, what do you think about this? Or how do you feel about this? And I would, I would say, I don't know. I could tell you how they feel. She's like, no, no, that's not what I said. Getting back to your own ball of string, not focusing on the sick person, setting boundaries, not getting pulled into the reactions or drama. For me, I think doing boundaries and love is difficult, right? To show compassion, mercy, and grace while letting go, but still loving, but not being involved. For me, that takes conscious effort. You know, stop tracking the, their illness, you know, step out of it. Realize I'm powerless over the situation. I'm powerless over them learning to honor yourself, you know, acknowledging how you feel. Right now, what I'm working on pretty heavily is this concept of just be, just be. Not knowing how to function out of crisis, because crisis is so normal, chaos is so normal, that having peace feels very uncomfortable. Learning to just sit. And I'm like one of those people my husband jokes with me because we have a couple of little chihuahuas and dogs won't even sit on my lap because I'm constantly like up going, doing, you know, I never sit still learning. This is, you know, it's, it's not easy. As I said, the whole story of my childhood impacted me hugely. There was a long time in my life when I felt like I came out unscathed and it didn't touch me at all. But the fact was that, that it did, you know, Al-Anon has been a really great tool for me and helping me to have some health in my life and to be self-aware and draw a boundary and so forth. So I'm going to go ahead and read a quote from my book. And then, as I said, I think Spencer's going to put a link to my book. It's called Born Into Crazy. It talks about my experience. As I walked down the driveway, that's when I saw it. There was blood running down the stucco, forming a pool in the chipped gravel. There was broken glass scattered everywhere. 
My eyes followed the trail of blood, and I saw her face sticking through the shattered bathroom window. Blood was dripping from her chin down the side of the house. The thick blood made her barely recognizable. At first, I wasn't sure exactly what I was looking at. Her appearance shocked me into a frozen state. Standing behind her was a tall, heavy-set man with wild, black, curly hair and an unruly beard. He was tall, very muscular, and exceptionally cruel. His hands were wrapped tightly around Mom's neck while she gurgled and struggled to call my name. He had a sick look of pleasure on his twisted face as he stood behind her. While he strangled her, I noticed the shards of glass protruding from her face, and the blood seemed to paint the front of her shirt a bright red. It felt like my feet were stuck, and I couldn't move. Thank you guys so much for letting me share my story with you, and God bless. I also have read the book. You did? Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, so when you wrote to me and said you'd like to tell your story mm-hmm. on the podcast and that you had written a book, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I have to go read the book before I can say, let's do this thing. Um, yeah. you know, I have to know what it's about. And and I have to say that it was not an easy read. Really? Yeah. I mean, it flowed. It mm-hmm. had a narrative. Right. It kept moving. Mm-hmm. But the things you were writing about yeah we're very difficult to read sometimes yeah it was um it was definitely a very challenging childhood there was a lot of abuse and trauma yeah as i mentioned in the book we we had to hold these secrets in and i held my secrets in all the way until my 30s i didn't like to talk about it it was really painful definitely in writing the story it was it was cathartic but it was also painful you know so what led you to decide to tell your story in that very public way. I mean, it sort of is, it sort of isn't the picture on the cover is you as a a baby or toddler or something. I don't don't know exactly how old you are there, but yeah, it's still, it feels very public to me. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So as I said, I, I held the secrets in for decades and kind of hid myself away where nobody really knew who I was when the feelings were demanded to be felt I felt that I got to a place of freedom where it was empowering for me to be able to own my own trauma Mm -hmm. and having that freedom to be able to speak about my experience and be validated. You know, as a child, there was a lot of confusion. And as an adult now, understanding that my feelings were wrong. And so it kind of helped to honor my, my experience. Obviously, why did I write this book? Well, I wanted to share my story of a person living up close and personal with addiction, but also mental illness, because that added a whole other layer into it, ultimately to inspire others and bring catharsis to myself, you know? Yeah. You talk in the in the book and ending your share about being told to lie. Right. And, and I think how that led you to, to question your own understanding of, of reality. You know, it was so weird to me because it was almost seen as talking about it or stating it was worse than the actual act itself, like the whole white elephant in the room thing and Mm -hmm. secrets make us sick. And so we were all expected to protect mom's illness and protect the addict and at all costs. And so it definitely created a lot of confusion in me as a child because I would see the truth of what was happening. but be persuaded very strong to 
state something else. Yeah. I mean, that hurt me reading it almost the same as the actual experiences. Um, yeah. that, you know, that your grandparents would, I mean, I felt like at times they were protecting you, right? but then in this aspect, they absolutely weren't. Yeah. I think that they're, and I'm not, I'm not totally sure about their background and if sure. um, alcohol ran in the family, but definitely my grandma dealt with, you know, enabling and denial. I don't think she knew the severity, wanted to see the severity of the situation. That was kind of my take on it. How, when writing this book and, and putting these things down on paper, Paper. I don't know. Is there paper anymore? Um, <laughs> how does this? How does this help you move forward? Yeah. So I think that, as I said, I didn't feel my feelings for more than a decade, probably more than that, and I could no longer push them down. So those secrets were making me sick, physically sick. Mm. And so, in writing everything down, it it honored me. It did help to bring clarity, help me to see things a little bit more clearly. So, yeah, so it just kind of made room for a healthier mindset. You opened the show with a reading about step six, and I'm feeling like that relates to that this process of, of working through the past relates to being able to move forward in step six and seven and so on. Is that? Yeah, totally. I think that. You know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of distrust. I think my trust was really shattered at a young age and, you know, very hesitant and reluctant, a lot of fear. I'm kind of believing the world was a bad place, that that was my experience as a child as I was exposed to a lot of dangerous situations and people. So start to begin to challenge those defects within myself of and those deeply seated beliefs, you know, of I'm in danger. Obviously, I'm not in danger anymore. But, you know, and asking God to help me work on those issues of, of fear and distrust. Isn't something like PTSD is where you still feel that danger, even when it's not actually present? Yeah, I mean, it was really crazy because I had tried for so long and so hard to prove that it didn't impact me and that it came out of this whole thing like untouched or unfazed. But really, you know, I found out I did have PTSD and that was part of the panic attacks and the nature to hide. And then, you know, having those gaps in my memory and just feeling, feeling afraid all the time. And I couldn't understand why do I feel afraid all the time when this happened to me so long ago. So definitely I've worked the train of trauma with, you know, licensed credentialed therapists. And I totally believe in all that. But I also use the steps to help me move forward and in, in getting a healthier mindset. Yeah, I I know that, I mean, my childhood was relatively untraumatic, but there are things that I've, I've carried. I remember talking to my sister, I don't know, I mean, she was probably in her 40s, I was in my 50s, and she asked me, like, don't you still feel a little bit afraid of our father? Mm-hmm. He was a great father, but he did have some anger and he was kind of controlling and that like there was his way of doing things and you darn well better do them his way. Right. I realized that, yeah, I had carried some of that forward and the way that I carried it forward was not 
so much fear, but replicating those behaviors. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And we, you know, I, I didn't recognize for, for so long and, you know, basically until I got into recovery and, you know, did a few inventories that I was even carrying that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Hey, I grew up, everything was great. I went, you know, not true. And, and so when your, your childhood is not great, mm-hmm. feels like, wow. But at the same time, denial is, is a really strong, you know, thing in us. Right. Yeah. That's interesting that you brought about that um, subconscious thing, you know, it's like you're you're not even fully aware of the ways that your your childhood has impacted you and that's very true. Just deeply seated beliefs and things that within us that need to to really come to the surface and be dealt with, you know. Yeah. But it's life it's lifelong. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Oh yeah. What happens next? Where do you go after the book? Well, I definitely feel very much a connection and a passion with mental illness and addiction. And I am hopeful to have opportunities to speak more on this because I feel talking about it it does help take away the secrecy and shame, you know, opening the dialogue and transparency facilitates healing. And I did graduate college. So, (laughs) So I'm thinking about graduate school, but you know, you can't help but be drawn a little bit to that world when you grow up in it. Oh, the, yeah. <laughs> so we're just kind of considering my options at this point. Mm-hmm. I know so many people who've been affected by addiction end up mm-hmm. in a helping profession of some yeah. sort. Mm-hmm. You know, either because they came out of the, themselves or because they want to help other people come out of it or both, I suppose. You know, when you talk about reducing like increasing understanding reducing shame and secrecy right. i know there are there are organizations that help to focus on on you know sort of normalizing i guess and and helping people to understand that you know mental illness is a disease just like everything else absolutely yeah because it is such a such a secret thing in our lives you know mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny that you said that because my husband and I are really into documentaries. And last night we were watching this documentary on Amazon. It was talking about, it was like a a child that had mental problems his whole young life and then adult life. And he never got help, but everybody knew that he had a problem. But people were like scared to kind of delve in and like really help him. And then it kind of grew to this this issue where he ended up, you know, murdering and all this kind of stuff. But it was like this huge buildup of, you know, a lot of people knew and didn't do anything. And so I think there, there is, there's a lot of fear around mental illness. And as you said, it's, it's like any other disease, you know, diabetes, cancer, whatever. And these are people. And I think it's important that we don't dehumanize them, you know, that we see them as, as people who deserve all the things that we want in life, you know, yeah. love, happiness and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we had people from the national association for mental illness, which I guess is um, called NAMI, N-A-M-I mm-hmm. came to our church to do a, a workshop with the teens mm-hmm. in the groups. And so we, as, as teachers were encouraged to encourage our 
you know, the kids in our classes to, to go to this presentation. And I think we, I feel like I, let me speak for myself. I always try to do that. Didn't really do a very good job of motivating it. And, and most of the kids were like, uh, no, I'm not, you know, this doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we tried to say, look, even if it's not you, you probably have a friend who's affected mm-hmm. and, you know, you can, you can learn something about it and maybe help your friend, but it, mm-hmm. that wasn't a strong enough message. Yeah. Empathy and compassion. That's great. Yeah. And I think part of it is, is this denial, you know, it's not happening. Right. Yeah. It doesn't affect me until it does. Right. It's a lot like it's a lot like alcoholism in that way, in that there's just so much shame that that comes with mental illness, and stigma, and huge fear around all of it. So, yep, yeah. I was at a meeting this morning, and and this guy comes in with a cast on his arm, and everybody's like, "Oh, what happened? No, we're so sorry." And and then another person came in with her arm in a sling, and she's like, "Yeah, I just had shoulder surgery," and. Everybody's like sympathetic, right? Right. Somebody comes in who is maybe, you know, acting out of a mental illness. So they're not speaking in, in, in the way that we expect them to or whatever. And, and I think everybody just kind of pulls away a little, right? Totally. Yeah. There's a guy in one of, one of the meetings that I go to occasionally who's got Tourette's. Mm-hmm. And he's very open about it, and and uh, sometimes he introduces himself and says, "Look, I have Tourette's, and and I I just make random noises, and that's that's just me." Mm-hmm. It still bothers me, but yeah. I understand it, and so I can let go of you know, I I can let go of blaming him. I get bothered when the guy at the next desk at work has the sound turned on on his computer. So every time he gets a message, there's a little ding or something. Okay. So I know that about myself. Uh, right. So anyway, but, I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a child that kind of hit what you were talking there, there was just so much shame mm-hmm. when it came to mom's mental illness, because I quickly picked up on the fact that people were afraid of her. Mm-hmm. She definitely could invoke fear, mm-hmm. you know, and she did things like, I mean, she went outside completely naked, you know, and, you know, did embarrassing things in public. And, and that was, that was one thing that would anger me. And I spoke, you know, about in the book, the emergency, the ER situation, Mm -hmm. how she kind of had a breakdown, you know, out in front of the ER. And it felt kind of like this was a Jerry Springer show to them. You know, this was entertainment. It was like, no, she's, she's having a serious episode and she needs medical help. And, um, right. And if, if she was, bleeding out in front of the ER, it would be a totally different reaction. I mean, you still get the gawkers. You always get the gawkers, but it wouldn't feel like so much like, oh, we're entertaining people, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can bring a little bit of understanding, a little bit more acceptance, Mm -hmm. is that like success? You know, I guess I I didn't really ask. I I asked you why you you decided to write it. Do you have a, a feeling like if this then I'm successful or do you feel like I'm already successful because I was able to do that? You know, I just basically felt like it was a challenging 
childhood to grow up in. Who who among us doesn't have struggles? I mean, we all do. You know, not really having strong parents and kind of feeling like alone in the world and then all the challenges that came along with the addiction and the mental illness. But ultimately, when I got past the poor me thing and got into my adulthood, I, I finally was able to see, no, this actually made me a better human, you know, a lot more compassion and understanding and empathy. And and that is what I want to share with people is is that, you know, addicted people and mentally ill people are people. And, you know, just just have compassion for your fellow man. And I don't know if that answered your question, but. Thank you. Thank you for all that. Yeah. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. I got a song suggestion from Patty, and I thought, you know, it kind of fits here. She sent a suggestion of the song, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth by George Harrison. And she wrote, in honor of George Harrison's birthday on February 25th, before Elanon, I remember praying every week in Mass the same prayer on bended knee. I would beg for God to give me peace. Just a little bit would suffice. After one year in the program, I can say that isn't my number one prayer anymore. Serenity is the gift of Al-Anon, and for that I'm eternally grateful. The lyrics are, are pretty simple. Give me love, give me love, give me peace on earth. Give me light, give me life, keep me free from birth. Give me hope, help me cope with this heavy load. Trying to touch and reach you with heart and soul. You know, to some extent, I think that's what your book does. Reaching out with heart and soul. Thank you. Yeah. What comes from the heart reaches the heart, you know. Mm. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? I don't know, maybe because it's winter, my my theme is acceptance. So we had we had a snow warning for Tuesday this week. I think it was Tuesday. I don't remember. Uh, storm watch was what it was, right? You know, we're going to get like six to eight inches of snow, and it's going to be blowing and all this stuff, and and everybody's freaking out. I'm like, we live in Michigan. Come on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, snowmageddon. Ah. <laughs> And and a lot of people stayed home from work. They let us out early. Those of us who came to work said, you can go home early because the snow was supposed to peak right around the evening drive time. That's a very rational reaction, to actually, response to, to that particular fact. Yeah. Sometime in the middle of the afternoon, one of my colleagues remarked, wow, this went from no big deal to, hey, where's my driveway? <laughs> you know, it was it was a... Big-ish snow. It's not the biggest we've ever had. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the worst we've ever had. I had to clear the driveway twice in the day, and that's. And then the next day, it was sunny and and cold, and and people were still kind of digging out. I guess the schools were closed for two days because of, you know, especially where they have some like rural bus routes. Maybe the roads aren't cleared well enough for the buses and stuff. Yeah. It. it felt sort of like an overreaction and I just was like, okay, this is what it is. These are the things I have to do and, and do them and then, you know, and move on and, and I still have life. Right. Mm -hmm. 
that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I come from the Midwest, so I remember those really frigid, cold winters, and I definitely don't miss them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, we moved out. We moved out west, so it's been I think in the fifties or sixties for most of the week. <laughs> We had a pretty good week. My, I had a cup and my kid was sick for a few days. So home with her and taking care of her and everything. But I think, uh, you know, after coming out of graduating college and kind of publishing my book, I'm really kind of just focused on trying to just be and, you know, kind of have that, that time for peace because peace is important. Mm -hmm. Take a breath. Um, which isn't always easy for us type A's, but that's <laughs> kind of where I am this week. Coming up, we're st- still working on an episode on dual program members. I want to thank the people who sent in shares. If you are a member of multiple programs, uh, more than one, I'd love to have you share your experience, how that works for you. You can leave a voicemail. You can send an email on how Diana, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like to talk to us about, let us know. The website is therecovery.show. We have notes for each episode, links to the music. You know, if we read from a book or something, I might try to make a link to where you can get the book. I'm not sure about the reading you had today. Yeah, so this was from Melody B. Codependence Guide to the 12 Steps. So that's probably available on Amazon, huh? Yeah. So I can put a link to Amazon for that book for somebody who wants to dig into it. And, of course, we'll have a link to your book, Born Into Crazy, on Amazon. Yeah. This morning, I was as I was having breakfast, I looked at the table, and my wife has a copy of The Unofficial Guide to the 12 Steps, which I think is what she works with her sponsees out of. Mm-hmm. So there, there's definitely, there's literature out there that's not programmed, but can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. In this podcast, we, we try to find all the different ways in which we can, we can move in recovery. I also wanted to say, and I know you've done this a number of times, is if you want to send a long voice share, you can record it using voice memo or whatever that app is on your phone uh, and email it. And that's a great way to get your voice in as a share. And I love it when people do that because then I don't have to read it and I get multiple voices and you're not just listening to me all the time. Mm-hmm. We've got a little bit of email and whatnot this week. Liz sent an email about a little oops from last week. She writes, hi, Spencer. I'm a devoted listener of your podcast. I would love to be a devoted listener of songs on Spotify, too. I'm struggling to find the recovery show there. I don't see instructions or a link in the show notes. Can you help me out? And I know in last week's episode, I said, yeah, I'm going to put a link in the show notes because it's really hard to find. And then I forgot. So it's there now. (laughs) I wrote back. I said, my apologies and thank you for pointing out my oversight. 
I've added links to the show notes at therecovery.show slash 320. I made a link to The Recovery Show user on Spotify, which is in the section that's titled Readings and Links in the show notes. And I also uh, embedded a little playlist for the episode 320 songs. Those are below the, that's below the, the YouTube videos. So thanks, Liz. You know, I know I'm not perfect. I'm human. <laughs> Roberta left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Roberta from California, and I am calling on episode uh, 119, Worrying. I'm laughing because, oh my God, you and Eric were, are just such amazing hosts together, and I truly appreciate everything you do for the recovery show and this service that you give because it is part of my recovery, and I thank you over a hundred times and more, millions of times for this. And anyway, so back to episode 119. You, like, literally were talking about everything that I'm in worry or fear mode and currently, and I haven't been able to get in touch, well, not in touch, but me with my sponsor for a while, and we're tag-teaming each other to life, you know, we're busy, and I'm, I'm doing the footwork, I'm really trying, but you you talked about waking up in the 3 o'clock in the morning, and financial despair, and worrying about the property taxes, well, it is March 2020, almost, February 28th, exactly, and yeah, I'm freaking about my property taxes, and I, that's my higher power, so that's program, and faith, and everything, that's I know everything's going to be okay. I do know that. Can I sit back and spend every waking dime I have on things that I don't need but want, per se? No, I can't do that. I know that. I have to do the footwork. But I do know my higher power will provide. And you, all the words that you were saying, I'm like, oh, my God, he's speaking everything that I'm having fearful, fear and worry of currently. So I just wanted to share with people you know, don't leave before the miracle happens because it does happen, even though it's not April 10th yet, and I have not paid my property taxes this year yet. I will, and I know it's all going to be okay. It's scary, sure, but I have a career. I have a job. I have a roof over my head. I am not living in my car or in a tent. or There is food in my refrigerator, you know. I mean, I can treat myself occasionally to a... A, a tea drink uh, versus a coffee drink. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to say thank you, and you were literally spewing everything that I had to say, So, uh, or I, that I was thinking, I should say. So thank you, thank you, thank you again. Bye. Thanks, Roberta, for that. And, and I'm glad that, you know, this is why we do this thing. This is why we... We go to meetings and why we meet, why we, we meet with each other and support each other in program that maybe some part of our experience can help somebody else. So I'm glad that I was able to do that. Jan wrote, hi Spencer and everyone listening. I'm Jan from BC, Canada. I was fascinated with the shares about men at meetings. I live in a very small village in BC, Canada and our regular attendance is about two to three over the winter months. The last summer, when I went to my first meeting in August, there was about six or seven in all women. This week, a young man attended, and I was pleased to see a new person. I was not pleased that we were all encouraged to hug after closing. Thanks for addressing hugging, and though it's not necessarily a sexual thing, I'm not comfortable with close hugs with others as I'm not related to or close friends with. 
I'm going to talk to the person who opens our meeting rooms about this. Another thing that came to mind is that having separate gender meetings does not ensure the don't date from your meeting. This seems to not consider the presence of LGBTQ persons at meetings. I'm an ally of this community and needed to bring this forward to you, Spencer, and your show's listeners to consider. I was also thinking of a friend who is partnered with another AA person, though they seem to attend different meetings much of the time. I love the podcast and found them last fall so I could attend more than one meeting in a week as a newbie. Saying this, I was involved in ACOA meetings and codependency workshops readings about 25 years ago in a bigger community. I would be glad to offer what I can remember from those meetings in a future podcast, Spencer. I'm off to town for the afternoon ferry to meet a friend for dinner and a movie. Take care and thanks for listening, Jan. Thanks for writing, Jan, and thanks for, you know, sharing your discomfort about some things that, that sometimes happen that, you know, we often don't think about the different reactions that, that people have to some of the the traditions that we have in, in meetings. I mean, the meetings in my area, we generally join hands to say the serenity prayer or the Al-Anon declaration sometimes at the end of the meeting. And I wonder, I think, well, what if somebody's not comfortable doing this? Are they feeling like pressured to do it? So it's it's really important for me to hear that experience from you. Thanks for sharing that. Jen also sent another email asking about online meetings. I referred her to the Elanon website, which has information about electronic and phone meetings. There's a sort of a social network for recovery people called In the Rooms. I've participated in a few meetings there some years ago. There was a time when I was working way too much and I could, if I was working in the evening and missing a meeting, I could sneak off into a, a conference room and, and join a meeting online for an hour. And that was, that was helpful to me, but I haven't been back in quite a while. Yeah, I actually do listen to in the rooms. I really love that option when I'm not able to get to a meeting or my, my schedule is busy, you know, having a kid in ballet and all that kind of stuff. And it's totally anonymous. You don't have to show your face. And yeah, I, I really like that one. Thanks for that experience. I'll put links to both of those. And I know there are others, but those are the two that I'm familiar with. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes again at the recovery.show slash 321. Alina sent us a couple of shares about communication, which was covered in episode 56. Hi, my name is Alina. I'm just wanting to share on episode 56 about communication. I really, really enjoyed this topic. And it's actually something that I've been struggling with probably for the last couple months. I mean, I have struggled with it before, but it just seems like it's more heightened the last couple months with one of my qualifiers. You know, I feel like Communication is important, especially because if you just assume something or you're not quite sure, at least for me, you know, it can be misinterpreted and it just could all be just resolved with just simple, this is what I'm feeling or, hey, I'm upset, but it's not with you. It's because of this instead of just being in a bad mood or being upset or sad or whatever it is, even you know, communication when things are good, like, Hey, I'm in a good place. This is what I'm going through. This is what helped me. You know, like I always feel, you know, that I can openly communicate with my sponsor and with my Al-Anon friends with my qualifier. It's, 
it's just difficult because even when I communicate in a positive manner, I feel like he's not really paying attention because he doesn't respond. He has a hard time with attention, keeping his focus. And I would say 75% of the time he's on his phone and sometimes he won't even start on his phone and then I'll be talking and, you know, he'll grab his phone and be on it. You know, I've gotten used to that in the beginning. It really would upset me and, you know, maybe it still should, but I've accepted it and I still kind of just talk and, but then when I don't get any feedback, it's just like I'm by myself, like I'm alone. And, you know, when things aren't good and I try to communicate, I'm sometimes reserved about it because I don't want to have an argument. I don't like conflict. It makes me really uncomfortable. I know for me, when someone tells me something like, hey, you know, when you said this, I felt this way. I can either apologize and correct it or acknowledge it and say, you know what, that's not what I meant. Like it was a misunderstanding. This is what I meant. And I'm sorry that you took it the wrong way or that I led you to believe a certain thing. So that's the way I handle things. But I know that when I try to communicate with my qualifier, sometimes I'll hesitate. Like I really have to hold it in and ponder about it and think about it and I don't know necessarily walk on eggshells, but I feel like I kind of do. And I hesitate. And when I do set aside time to talk or say something, I know that he will get angry and it'll turn into an argument because then he starts telling me what my, like pulling out my inventory and, you know, what I did and brings up past problems and things that aren't even relevant to what's going on at the moment. And, you know, I always start out very calm and I usually stay calm for the most part, but it really affects me. I usually get super emotional and it hurts. I don't know why it's painful for me to, I guess, hear what they have to say. It's just words that aren't even, you know, and I know later that he will apologize usually the next day and say, Oh, you know, don't believe anything I say when I'm mad, but it's hurtful. Some of the stuff, like I don't even go that hard on people that do wrong to me in everyday life, but I guess everyone handles things in in their own way. And, you know, being angry and lashing out like that is part of communication as well. I get that, but I don't know. I feel like I need to work on this. This is something that, you know, I don't want to be a doormat. I know that sometimes I have to weigh my options and see like, okay, you know, is this worth bringing up now? Can I just get over it? Do I just need a little space? Do I pray about it? Do, you know, what do I do? So I just need to pause for a minute. And that's one thing that I always have to remember too. But sometimes I just schedule these, you know, like when something's bothering me, I don't want to talk about things. I'm not the type of person that have a hard time at the end of a day or whatever being like, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And that always bothers me because I feel like it's in a heightened state. Like when we're angry, you know, we'll just finish this tomorrow. I'm feeling sad and upset and he's angry. And, and I know it's probably the best thing is just to stop and then sleep on it and then talk about it tomorrow. But I just have a hard time dealing with that. And I don't know why that is. I just need to be mindful, I guess, and take care of myself and realize that 
it's not the end of the world, it'll pass, that kind of thing. I really like this topic on communication. It was really, really good. Hopefully I can uh, make some progress in this department. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. And please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.